0: Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.
2: Dave and Dejanovic, your morning companions for talk, analysis, and key perspectives on Utah's biggest stories on KSL News Radio.
3: Paying close attention this morning to the developments out of Mexico, where four Americans went down there for a medical procedure. They were all kidnapped at gunpoint in this wild kidnapping by what we think is the cartel. Two of them dead, found dead, according to Mexican authorities. Two alive. One of them, however, uh, the two who uh, who are alive, one of them is injured. Dave,
4: Debbie, I'm I'm just this is brand new. You you told me about this five seconds before we uh, got on air. I missed uh, the, the update on this. Yeah. The development. I I've got to learn more about this what they were down there for you won't believe it what's the response going to be from the united states what are you doing to protect your citizens that are traveling to other countries it's 908 it's time for the launch
3: sequence
5: engaged
4: and here are three things that debbie wants you to know
6: Countdown three.
3: Uh, this morning at 1145. Make sure you are tuned in. 1145 Elizabeth Smart calls the show. Um, we're also going to speak to an author of a new book about the kidnapping who will take us day behind the scenes. He's joining us in studio at 1030 this morning for the police and the family and the media conflicts. Many of us knew nothing about, but you're going to learn about them today. Um... Like the day she was rescued and the cops who found her walking on State Street nine months after she'd been kidnapped, who pulled her aside from her kidnappers and asked her if she was Elizabeth Smart. I remembered back in 2003, I interviewed one of those officers or a couple of them. Here's what Officer Tori Rasmussen told me back in '03 after she was rescued. So she did not want to admit initially who she was. Isn't that right?
7: That's correct.
3: What did she tell you?
7: She was deceitful in her answers. She wasn't telling us the truth. Uh, like Officer Jones said, Victor, Quisada, and Bill O'Neill arrived, and we took her aside.
3: Answers ...on scene, scene that, that she was, she was Elizabeth she was Smart. I'm looking forward to full coverage today starting at 1030.
4: We remember the result, that she was returned to her family. What we may have forgotten is the chaos, and quite honestly, it was chaotic on so many levels not just locally and with the police investigation but this was a national story this was a a story that the reached across the globe and we were captivated by it and when she was returned all was forgotten this reminds us of some of the the chaos that was happening during the
6: search
3: countdown well, the legislature is adjourned. So let's compare the state budget then and now. We're going to take a walk back in time. What Was it 1999, Dave, you looked yeah. at? 1999, when the state budget seemed like peanuts compared to what we're spending today. So at 935, we're going to take an in-depth look into how lawmakers plan to spend your tax money. For example, is it okay with y'all that we're buying a new state plane? I think the price tag on that is seven mil.
4: That, that's a rounding error right now with that budget. Let me let me just give you a little tease, Deb. The budget back in 1999, the state budget, the entire thing, pays for everything, $6.7 billion. The one we just passed, $29 wow. billion. Even adjusted for inflation, that's more than double what it should be.
3: Launch Countdown. One. Our top story this morning, those four Americans who crossed into one of the most violent spots on the globe for a medical procedure. Uh, here's what we've learned uh, in the last few minutes. They were driving from South Carolina into Texas and into the tip of Mexico in a white minivan, and they never made it to the doctor's office. Shot at, kidnapped, manhandled into the back of a truck. Two of them now dead. One of them injured, another one um Both of two others have been, you know, found alive, but one of them is injured. The sister, Dave, of one of those missing Americans saying they begged, told them, please don't go down to Mexico. I'm just checking
5: on you. That's what I told them Thursday. And then, like I said, Friday morning, I texted and I didn't get anything.
4: My daughter is in Mexico right now. Mexico City. She's in the MTC. But... This doesn't make me feel any better about what's going on in Mexico. This is terrifying.
0: Dave and Dujanovic.
4: The launch.
0: Commence. Dave and Dujanovic.
2: Special coverage of the top national story.
3: They vanished almost the moment they crossed the border into one of the most dangerous spots on the globe in Mexico. Two of the four Americans kidnapped have been found dead. The other two found alive. One of them is injured. Um, this is a tragic story on so many levels. I'm going to get into a moment why they went over the border despite family begging them not to go.
4: And this information, the latest information, is coming from the Mexican president, Obrador. This is the this story. We were watching it. The video came out of them being kidnapped. We watched this happen. And it made me realize and and think back on an interview we had with Mike Lee. This was years ago, but it was prophetic.
2: Mexico is leaning dangerously toward becoming a failed state uh, when the drug cartels become as big and as powerful and as bold and as callous toward human life.
4: When you pluck four Americans off the street... And broad then daylight. Ju- broad daylight, yeah, Bra- exactly broad daylight with cameras all over the place, and then just shortly after, they they are found dead.
3: I watched a report this morning on Good Morning America, and and they they got a lot more information about these victims. Tape one of them is a 33 year old mother of six. Now, mind you, we don't know. I don't think at this point um, who survived and who didn't survive. They went down for a cosmetic procedure.
6: ABC News learning their names, Latavia Tay McGee, Woodwards, and Del Brown, and Eric Williams. McGee's mother, Barbara, telling ABC News her daughter was traveling from Lake City, South Carolina, to Mexico for a cosmetic procedure with her cousin and two others. Barbara says she told her daughter she did not want her to go, but her daughter said, quote, Ma, I'll be okay. She says Tay called her when she was 15 minutes away from the doctor's office, but she did not hear from her again, saying, quote, her phone just started going to voicemail.
4: South Carolina mm-hmm. and went to Mexico.
3: It's a long way from the violence in Mexico.
4: A long way. Mm-hmm. This false sense of of security. Like, what What do we know? What do you know in South Carolina about the, the safety situation in mexico how safe it is
3: it's a level four right now for danger which is the highest that the state department will give they have a website it says level four it's as dangerous according to the united states state department as afghanistan and north korea for u.s travel the
6: travel advisory for uh, tamalipa state remains at level four do not travel Uh, we encourage americans to heed that heed that advice
4: and Debbie again I, I can't help but go back to, to my own experience where my daughter is right I know, now I know that and uh, I mean this is a tragic story for these families but what is going on in Mexico right now and what's the response of of the United States government mm-hmm. because it's it's your obligation it's your duty to to make sure that when Americans travel to Mexico our neighbor who we have the Unreal connection with, whether it's financially, culturally, socially, whatever it is, we have this intimate connection with Mexico, and it is not safe right now. What is the United States government doing for us?
3: Uh, In the 10 o'clock hour, we're going to dive into how unsafe it is and what the warnings hold if you do go to Mexico. I'm thinking about spring breakers and parents who may be uh, knowing that their kids are traveling down there. Uh, for spring break very soon, or families are planning summer vacations for. We're going to dive into that in the 10 o'clock hour. Uh, I want to dive into this straight ahead. The lure of Mexico for inexpensive cosmetic procedures and even medical procedures is so real that it has now played out with the death of two Americans and the two others who survived were still kidnapped at gunpoint when they went down there for a cosmetic procedure. Um, I compared costs, Dave. You tell me uh, if you would be lured down to Mexico for, like, LASIK surgery, for example. Um, a hysterectomy. Maybe someone in your family needs a hysterectomy. If I'm going to name you the price prices of those procedures compared to U.S. prices, you're going to see why these people likely traveled to Mexico. Dave and
2: Dujanovic, special coverage of the top national story. Two of the four
3: Americans who drove their white minivan into a very, very dangerous part. It's one of the most dangerous spots on the planet, in fact, Mexico, for a cosmetic procedure. Two of them are dead. They were all kidnapped, probably by the Mexican drug cartel.
4: Of course, yeah.
3: FBI did offer a $50,000 reward as they tried to work the case to free them, Um, but two of them are dead. Two of them are, um, they were found alive, but one of them is injured. We don't know the extent. We don't know what happened. There was a shootout or something down there with the authorities that were trying to save these Americans. Um, But what we do know is family members begged them, begged them not to leave the comforts of America drive from South Carolina to Texas and cross the border.
5: So I'm just checking on you. That's what I told him Thursday. And then, like I said, Friday morning, I texted and I didn't get anything. Yeah.
4: That was a sister from one of those kidnapped. And the
3: phone calls started going to voicemail and the text messages went unanswered. And you know what that means.
4: And when we were watching the video, because this was caught in broad daylight, middle of the day, you could see armed men, they had some body armor, loading these individuals, kind of throwing them in the back of a truck. It wasn't rushed, though. That was strange. It was walk over, grab them, put them in the truck. It wasn't like you open up the side of the van, throw them in, and speed off. There was no urgency is they were kidnapping these individuals. I
3: thought they were going to be kidnapped for ransom after the story started to spill out into the national media late yesterday that, um, you know, they would want 10000 or $20,000, which is pretty typical of situations like this down in Mexico. It's not unusual for that to happen. In fact, there are many warnings that the State Department issues about this kidnapping for ransom. Uh, unfortunately, that turn out not to be the case it's two of them are dead one of them is a 33-year-old mother of six oh, i don't know if she's actually let me back up we actually don't know which of the four were shot and killed we do know that of the four one of them who went down there was a 33-year-old mother of of six whose mother also begged her not to go
4: did they drive their own vehicle yeah it was a north carolina
3: vehicle? license plates okay. that's a good question was it rented uh, we don't, I don't know for sure.
4: But it was a, a vehicle they brought right. from the state. So they go
3: from, yeah, they go from South Carolina, at least, for, we're, we're tracked so far. One of them lives in South Carolina and, and they're they're going with this group. I think one of them was a cousin and then it looked like maybe two women and two men. So I thought, well, maybe the men were like their, their buddies, the reinforcements, you know, for safety. Strength in numbers yeah. idea. Yeah, right. which didn't pan out, right? Um, But the lure of Mexico for medical procedures, I'm going to read you this price list. I'm going to compare what prices are in Mexico compared to the out-of-pocket expenses in the United States for some of these procedures. And you'll start to see the the draw. Um, However, I want to remind our listeners, Dave, that this is a level four security red flag warning from the State Department, which means it as is as violent as Afghanistan and North Korea for US travel. And also in the ten o'clock hour we're going to dive into summer vacations and spring breakers in Mexico. All right, we're gonna dive into that angle. You ready for this? Breast implants. In the US, it's sixty four hundred dollars. Mexico, it's 3800 you know, a lot of people who have had gastric bypass. Yeah. Absolutely. Very popular. Want to lose weight. Sure. Yeah. The U.S., $30,000. What I don't know is if any of that is covered by insurance. I would imagine maybe it depends yeah. on the circumstances. Right. In Mexico, it's tens of thousands of dollars cheaper. The list price there is about $14,000. So, I mean, $15,000 cheaper, $19,000, whatever it is. It's a lot cheaper there. Not doing a good job at math today. Um, Liposuction, also another popular cosmetic procedure. And again, we don't know what cosmetic procedure they went down there for. In the U.S., $5,500 for lipo. In Mexico, you can get away with paying about $2,900.
4: So we're seeing 40 to 60% savings.
3: How about LASIK? 4,000 in the United States, less than 2,000 in Mexico for both eyes, for both eyes. Um, Gustavo Rodriguez, our, our producer, um, you, your family is from Mexico and you travel down there frequently to visit them, uh, especially over like Christmas vacation, but you've also been down there When you lived in, what, California for dental procedures, right? Yeah. So talk about that.
5: Yeah. So when I was in uh, middle school, early high school, my dad decided that I needed braces and for sure. So we went to uh, Southern Mexico and I got the, my, the dental procedure. I got my braces in Southern Mexico in the state of Michoacan, which is also on the list. Um, As dangerous? That's dangerous. Wow. It's it's. I, I've seen it on CNN and all that. That it, it's on the list. Um, and then, you know, as a I I had to get my braces adjusted every month. So a friend of a of my dad's uh, uh, knows a doctor, and the doctor is in Tijuana, on the border, on the other side of San Diego. And that we would we, we would go down there every fourth, every Saturday, every every fourth Saturday of the month.
4: Has how have things changed since you were in middle school? Safety wise, does it is this always been the threat, and we're just aware of it because of this story, or are, are things more dangerous now? So,
5: so when I was little, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know I don't know how how bad it was down there. But I've always known there's always been cartels, there's always been violence. But in certain states, not all of them, not all of Mexico, and uh, you know. Sadly, I've always known about the state, uh in the city of Matamoros. This is where that happened. The darkest it's, corner of Mexico. And they went down there
3: for that that cosmetic yeah, procedure. It's yeah, yeah, would yeah. you ever go down there? You know, not, went to went, place, not to that state or the
5: area. state or city. No, no, no. It's always it's always been Tijuana or southern Mexico where my family's from.
3: And how did your teeth hold up? Uh
5: are they still straight? Smile for us. According to my dentist here in West Valley, he says that they do a great job down in Mexico. Okay.
3: <laughs> well, I was looking. I've had a couple of root canals. Not that we want to talk about that over breakfast, but it's expensive here. Uh, $1,300 compared to 250 bucks in Mexico. It's an 80% savings. So one, of the things, one
4: of the things that Gustavo uh, said really resonated with me um, and, and really regarding this story as well is he knows this place, he knows this state, he knows this city, he knows it's dangerous. Americans don't know this. Unless you do the research, which sometimes you can ignore. I on the Hill 2023, <laughs> special coverage on Utah's
3: morning news. Hey, I want you to remember this number. $29 billion dollars. Uh, When the 2023 legislative session wrapped on Friday, that was the total bill, (laughs) the bill of bills, for Utah government to
4: run. For the love, will you stop spending my money? Just stop spending. Holy cow. $29 billion. Now, uh, stick with this. We're going to talk about what it was just 20 years ago how much we were spending in this state for the Bill of Bills all all, all put together. But in 45 days, they passed over 500 bills. Uh Now, there were 1,500 bills that they were working on, but they passed 500. My question, what are we doing? What's this money going to? Where is it being spent? How many laws do we need in this state? My goodness, because it seems the more laws we pass, the more that bill just keeps Skyrocket.
3: Not all of those bills have a fiscal note, though. Yeah. Not all of them cost money. So a lot, of, but obviously a lot of them they're spending are it somewhere sc- are spending right. So twenty nine billion. It certainly sounds like a lot uh, until you let's look at our our favorite state, California. You know, we love to compare ourselves with California, even though they're like massively bigger and they have an ocean. But okay, uh, two hundred eighty six billion dollar budget. Okay, 10 times as much. Then let's go to New York, another state that's very comparable to Utah. (laughs) These are wild comparisons that you've given me, Dave. New York, the state, way far away from Utah, uh, $220 billion budget. And now let's compare ourselves to Delaware. Itty bitty Delaware. We have so much in common with Delaware, like we both have an A in the spelling of our state. Uh, four point five billion.
4: Okay, that that sounds unrelatable. Totally, that's what you're saying. You're,
3: <laughs> how can you compare us to California,
4: New We're, York? We
3: are special here.
4: Okay, I, I'm going to make it very simple for you. You figure out what's the what's the sure. budget, mm-hmm. and let's break it down by population okay. per capita spending. We are identical to New York. Mm. We spend oh, the same amount of money per person in the state of Utah tax wise
3: yeah, as New York does. I like that.
4: That's that that's okay. bonkers.
3: Well, I
8: like that Debbie, comparison. that's
4: not no, you don't like that. You hate that. <laughs> that's a terrible California is much better. <laughs> we spend eighty eight hundred dollars per person on taxes. Uh-huh. That's that's what we spend. Do you know what it is in California? 777300. $1, uh, $7, They're $1500 cheaper. My <laughs> goodness. What happened to my Utah? that we we do our victory dances every time we talk about taxes and budgets math. like how fiscally conservative we are
3: this is great math dave this is this is really eye opening taylor morgan ksl at night host also a lobbyist on capitol hill you wear a lot of other hats as well but my point is is that you not only host ksl at night And give us all of the juicy details that you learn on Capitol Hill. But you also spend a lot of time on the Hill. So break it down for us. What in the world are they spending this $29 billion of our money on, Taylor?
6: Well, I think we need to point out a key difference between Utah, California, and New York. Because Utah's $28 billion budget this year included an $800 million spent in tax cuts. Dave, you're not going to find that in New York or California. Agreed. I'll go along with that. So, historically speaking, uh, this is Utah's largest budget ever at $28 billion. Uh, you know, a comparison, let's go right next door, Dave. Uh, Colorado's state budget last year was $36.5 billion. Um, so, we are still growing. Uh, I think, Dave, you mentioned earlier that in 1999, our state uh, budget was about $6 billion. If we go to 2003, 20 years ago, our total state budget was just about $3.8 billion. That grew to $12 billion in 2013, a decade ago. So Utah's growth and its economic growth has really corresponded with a rapid growth in our state, our state budget over time.
4: I see and I understand that the more we grow, that obviously the more we're going to have to spend. That's why I like looking at the budget compared to population. And if we are basically in line with New York, if we're even spending even more money than California, how in the world does that not concern you?
6: Well, look, anytime we're anything like New York or California, I think we should all be worried, Dave. So I'm going to dive into the math and double check you because you're raising my alarms. Uh, but I think we need to look at the need for infrastructure investment in Utah, and if we if we take a deep dive into the 2023 budget, uh, that really does make up the bulk of this budget. We are the legislature made historical generational investments in infrastructure, transportation, in education, and in particularly in water. Uh, Never before has the Utah legislature made these kind of huge generational investments, and that really was the bulk of this $28 billion spent this year. So Taylor,
3: if you can just give us just a tick through a couple of line items, like what are we spending, like a kajillion dollars, as Dave would say, on bridges? I mean, what? What like infrastructure and, and what are we spending on? Like give us some big numbers that we none of us can understand.
6: We're spending eight hundred million dollars on roads and highways. We're spending two hundred million dollars on expanding light rail. We're spending two hundred million dollars on optimizing agricultural water use in the state. We're spending five million dollars every year, including seven million dollars one time. To invest and develop cloud seeding technology to address water going forward into the future. Uh, we're spending a lot of money on outdoor recreation, $45 million on active trail networks throughout the state, and $150 million investment for Cottonwood Canyons transportation. Which means Those the gondola.
3: Which means a gondola.
6: Well, uh, maybe Deb. Maybe it yeah, means a mobility sure. hub, which could be a gondola base station. Yep. That will be decided by uh, UDOT and the legislature going forward.
3: Well, I'm just I'm just saying that because I'm trying to wind up Capitol Hill right now. With that, it means a gondola. <laughs> Taylor Morgan, calm um... down, Debbie. Calm down. <laughs> I know. I need to settle down. Uh, Taylor Morgan, don't touch my trails. Forty-five million on trails, <laughs> thumbs up. Uh, Taylor Morgan, KSL at night host, amazing analysis as always. Look forward to the show tonight. Oh, I guess it's uh, tomorrow night, right here on KSL.
4: Yeah, and when I look at these numbers, Debbie, twenty-nine billion, and sure, I, I'm hearing this one-time money, and we're making huge investments here and there. Okay, well, let's see what it is next year. Is there? Is it going to be? 25 billion? Is it going to be 19 billion? Or is it going to do what it has done every year that I've ever seen in the state budget, where it increases and increases and increases? We have to look at the size of our state government, what we're spending our money on, and do a real deep dive and say, is it too big? Is it too big? Because $29 billion in 2023, just 10 years ago, that was twelve billion dollars. Oh, what about inflation? Okay, sixteen billion if you want to adjust it for inflation. So, ten years ago, we've increased the budget by eighty mm-hmm. percent. I'm listening. That should be You're a so a full on
3: and I love this. panic mode panic. for us. I'm not going to panic about it, but I'm going to. Con- I think I think that's what, you did an awesome analysis on it. I would have had no idea that we are spending as much per person or per capita as New York uh, when it comes to our tax dollars.
4: I hope I did my math right.
3: We're going to fact check you. Don't <laughs> worry. Uh, so let's, bring us to our ne- let's that brings us to our next discussion. What would you do for a tax-free future? I'll be honest with you. I, I'm many years away from retirement. Sorry to disappoint all of you. Um, I'm many years out, but I have thought about moving to a state – That does not collect state income tax to save myself several hundred dollars a month.
4: And I'll tell you why you can stay here in Utah and rest easy. Okay,
3: Dave and Jennifer. Before they cut out for the season, the Utah State Legislature lowered taxes 0.2%. From 4.85% to 4.65%.
9: Over the past five years... We have cut taxes by three hundred and twenty-five million dollars.
3: That was uh, Speaker of the House Brad Wilson um, speaking in January.
4: So, what does that mean to me? How much more money am I going to get? That point two percent is going to save me about two hundred dollars a year. At least that's that's the calculation. Family of four making eighty k. Saves about $200 a year. So if you want to break that down, Deb, that's about 50 cents a day.
3: Well, I look at the $200 and I say, that's almost a full trip to Costco.
4: Over a year. Once. Once.
3: So let's keep using that $80,000 salary figure in Utah. You were paying $3,800 in state income tax. So, this organization um, that we turn to from time to time that does a lot of analysis, it's called Wallet Hub, put together a list of states with the highest and lowest tax rate in all of America. KSL News Radio's Mark Jackson gives us those details the
8: personal finance website's state survey shows the beehive state seventh lowest on a list of overall effective state and local tax rate the highest Utah ranks is 27th lowest income tax which is still about average among all states a separate survey of the nation's taxpayers show 81 percent of people were more worried about inflation than taxes this year
4: so several things here Deb you you mentioned before we went to break last segment like I'm moving I'm going to retire. And I'm,
3: I didn't say, I said it, I'm a long way off from retirement. Not that Sorry long. Sorry to, oh, do
5: you know something
3: you're not that I don't, far out. Do you, know, do you know something I don't know?
4: <laughs> Mandatory retirement, Deb.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I am turning 56 soon, but I haven't seen any any memo saying that I'm announcing my retirement. You're going to be, a, you're a lifer. But right. I feel that way for sure. It's in my blood. Uh, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. Also, I could move to Alaska.
4: Those have no state income right, tax. None.
3: So you have to think of these things when you meet with your financial planner and they say, okay, what's your plan for retirement? Uh, here's how much you'll have to work with uh, month to month. So what do you think? Can you think, well, maybe if I save $500 a month by moving to, I don't know, the back country of Alaska? You know live Maybe it's off, live, worth it. live off the grid
4: That's why it's important to look at the effective oh, tax rate because
3: oh, you gotta you gotta make it oh here we go. you gotta bring
4: it all together.
3: you're gonna make me overthink it now. Yeah
4: you definitely want to overthink this. Okay. It's mostly my excuse to get you to stay in Utah Oh, that's that's, sweet. that's my that excuse is here super sweet. but um okay, so you look at no state sales tax it's tempting. To go down to Florida, Texas, Yeah, Alaska, because it just like sounds that, right? simple. It sounds simple.
3: It does sound super easy.
4: But you have to take into account what's the sales tax in this
3: uh, state.
4: I don't know. What are property taxes? <laughs> mm-hmm. How much am I going to spend? So that's what they call the, the effective state tax rate. Mm-hmm. So you got to include all of that. When you look at it holistically, then Utah is almost top five. Oh, so for lowest tax. We're, we're for, seventh. Oh, for lowest. Oh. For lowest. So you're we're
3: like we're almost number one. We're seven. Okay. <laughs> we're
4: we're top five ish. Very very George Santos, right? <laughs> we're we're top five. We're number one ish. You're number seven.
3: So what you're saying is ish. it's not as bad as it sounds.
4: Yeah. So even okay. though we, we're kind of middle of the road okay. in the country as far as state income tax, mm-hmm. overall, yeah. put it all together, we're first. Ish.
3: Did I say- For we, seven. Did I also say that Wyoming has no personal income tax? I could- Done deal. I, I Totally. Diane, <laughs> here I, I come. No, I'm thinking, Laramie. I'm thinking Evanston. I
4: hear your winters are great.
3: <laughs> Have you been to Evanston lately? That town is booming. Booming. Um, okay, I love this second is part. Is that a fireworks <laughs> reference or?
4: <laughs>
3: booming. <laughs> <do> Cherry bombing. <laughs> I could- retirement job at a fireworks stand could you see me Was of those like Perfect. selling aerials yep. Yep. Okay. this one
4: travels 495 <laughs> feet in the air no, me. it
3: I'm covers so, half I'm the horizon so, I'm like the the most anti-fireworks person in the entire state of Utah I'm like the Grinch of the fourth of the 24th of July so yeah I'm moving to Wyoming to open up my own fireworks stand in retirement. Very
8: capitalist Uh, of you.
3: So I love this part. This will be kind of fun. Mark Jackson's report. Would you rather?
8: 72% of those questioned believe the current tax rate is too high. 39% of people would move to a different country for a tax-free future. 37% would get an IRS tattoo. 23% would stop talking for six months. 49% of people would do jury duty rather than do their taxes. While 26% would miss a connecting flight. Mark Jackson, KSL Radio
3: who doesn't miss a connecting flight like every other time they fly so oh that my is like, but would you get an IRS tattoo to never
4: <laughs> yeah i do not have a single <laughs> tattoo if i didn't have to pay any taxes an IRS tattoo wherever you want what if you, right only, across the forehead i don't care them,
3: what if you just didn't have to do taxes we are in the throes of tax season right now and i just I just, I had mine done again. I'm sorry. They're I not you're that hard. Me. Deb, Stop. It's horrible. So easy. No, I would, okay, I'm just going to put this out there. I've had, I'm going to talk about root canals again. I know it's early. Probably all y'all haven't had breakfast yet. I've had two root canals and they are super painful, like leading up to the first one. I didn't know what was going on. I just thought I was like, it was, this is how it ended. No <laughs>
4: way you're comparing it's this just, to taxes. I would,
3: I would rather go in for a root canal. Stop it. Yeah. Novocaine free. Like, no, no no laughing gas, no nothing. No yeah, one. then do my taxes, taxes ever again bad. for the rest of my life. For the rest of my life. <laughs> no life. Novocaine? Nothing. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, our discussion in, at 1030 when uh, author of a brand new book out about the Elizabeth Smart kidnapping and all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes that we didn't know about. He's going to tell us those stories and so much more when he joins us. And Elizabeth calling the show at 1145 this morning. Dave and Dujanovic. I heard this driving in on Utah's morning news today, Dave. This is a great discussion for us and our listeners. Uh, Salt Lake City, uh, of course, been on the list for potentially hosting the 2030 Winter Olympics. Uh, But turns out that Utah has a lot of competition. Um... And there's this really unique possibility that I think I went, uh oh, this could really interfere with Utah's chances. You say unique. I call it cheating. Oh.
4: You're cheating the system. Play fair.
3: Well, let's start with this. Let's uh, start with KSL News Radio's Adam Small, who did a report this morning on. Uh, the bids, the, the, the bid cities.
9: We know Salt Lake City, Sweden, Sapporo, Japan, and Vancouver, Canada have been named bidders for 2030. But recently, the head of the International Olympic Committee told the Associated Press there are five other bidders outside of Sweden, meaning six total. We still don't know the other two. And, and there there's a little, there's a hook here
3: mm-hmm. of
4: what, what those new bidders might look like.
3: Yeah. Is Frazier on the line? Frazier Bullock? President and CEO of yes. the Salt Lake City, Utah Games uh, for uh, Committee for the Games. Good morning.
7: Good morning.
3: So, I really want to dive right into this kind of this unique pitch that I heard about uh, when I was driving in this morning, listening to Tim and Amanda, and it has to do with like a couple of countries getting together to perhaps bid as one. What, what can you tell us about that?
7: Well, the new uh, program for bidding for games is flexibility. Uh, there, was, there were three countries that were looking at getting together, including Switzerland, Italy, and, and France uh, just a month ago. That didn't come together, but the IOC has made it clear that the games need to fit the circumstance of those countries and not the other way around, so they don't have to build new things. If they can go to several uh, small countries in Europe or several other countries in Europe, then they can utilize existing facilities, and that's really important.
4: What do you think about that? Because it it, it does seem like you're kind of gaming the system a little bit when you're awarding it to a region. And if if I'm having a fan experience and I might have to travel or take a flight from – Uh, City to city, that that seems like not a great experience. Well, that's
7: one of the great strengths of our bid is we have what we call compact games, such that all of the Olympic venues are within less than an hour of driving of downtown Salt Lake City. We're going to have the Olympic Village. And so that is an ideal games from our perspective. We think it's one of our strengths including our political support, our public support, all those elements make for a very compelling bid. So even though there are many cities out there uh, interested in the games, it's hard to put a games together. Uh, We're the only ones at this point that really have a solid bid that we're ready to go with. So there's going to be interest. We're going to read about uh, things that come and go or places that come and go. Game bidding is fluid. And but through all of that, we're ready. We're strong. Now, let me add one last thing is that our preference is 2034. So we're actually hopeful that Ooh. one of these candidates <laughs> steps forward yeah. for 2030. Okay. So <laughs> the competitive side of me says no, but the other, the logical <laughs> side of me says yes, well, this maybe. is good for us.
3: Yeah.
4: why why is it better why is 2034 so much better than 30 just too quick
8: uh
7: no 2030 we would overlap with los angeles having the 28 games Mm. and so their games end in august of 28 and we would start in february of 2030 which only gives us 14 months To raise sponsorship money and and all of these other elements, we would have a big overlap with L.A. We can make it work, but it's harder. Yeah. That's why
3: we prefer 2034. Well, and all the security resources that we called on for the 2002 Mm. Winter Games, too, weren't all from Utah, right? I mean, people were coming in and volunteers were helping. And so we would be leaning on those resources as well from other places across the United States. Um, That makes sense. So okay, go go Utah, go Salt Lake City for twenty thirty four. That is that's that was news. That's news to me, Fraser. I I mean I would like we'll just take the Olympics whenever we can get them. But there's a lot of strategy behind it that two co hosts that sit on a microphone all day, you know, all morning long, really don't understand. And what do you think the odds are we're going to get one of those two?
7: Extremely high. Our bid is so strong. It's so compelling that and and the, this is a key market to the uh, Olympic movement to have the United States the winter market as well as the summer market so we're highly hopeful and and pretty confident that we'll get
4: one of those two games
7: so we're optimistic we're ready we like we prefer 34 but if we need to do 30 we're ready
4: Fraser Bullock thank you for joining us president and CEO of the Salt Lake City Utah committee for the games
3: yeah are you excited
4: oh i'm I'm so beyond excited I love this idea i twenty thirty four just seems so far away I mean that's eleven years from now I, I I would like it to happen sooner uh but you listen it's still not terrible yeah I'll take either I'll, I'll take, take either, either for sure yeah was... but seven years will feel like tomorrow like if we get the twenty thirty bid it will be High gear, trying to make things happen. Mm-hmm. It it will be shocking. You remember all the massive changes we had uh, as soon as we got the first bid, which I- is a nineteen expansion.
3: I think. Yeah, we got the bid. I think it was a 94, 95. We first started talking about, and I first started covering those stories that we might bid in the early nineties. Yeah, and then I think we got the bid in, I want to say ninety five. Uh, and then I was looking at the calendar and thinking, well, two thousand and two, that'll never get here. And all of a sudden, it's 21 years in the rearview mirror. Yeah. It happens that fast. Super exciting. Fraser Bullock, thank you so much for jumping on the line with us. Always a pleasure to talk to you about the possibility.
4: I do think this is a game changer. If you start looking at regional bids, um, it would be very difficult if we were trying to share Mm -hmm. uh, with, say, Canada. You know, a a regional bid between the United States and Canada. But – for large countries like us how how much does it change it if we said hey we're going to host it here in Salt Lake City and Denver and possibly some areas up in Idaho you know if you had a oh, regional
3: bid i'm sure idaho has an ice skating rink right for for the win- for for ice skating. Oh, for sure yeah right or yeah. for what is that curling i did that curling yeah. thing yeah curling's awesome curling yeah i'm sure <laughs> yeah. they have an ice skating rink they can lend to the cause but the experience is they have totally some good different ski resorts, right? if
4: it's you know one stop shopping mm-hmm. everything's within an hour of salt lake city yeah but for other countries that may not have the resources or can't afford it that that might bring the olympics on some level in a smaller way to many more countries.
3: It was 20 years ago this month that Elizabeth smart was found alive on a hundred and second South, right near Southtown mall walking with her two kidnappers. Um, I spoke to her dad after she was found alive, her dad, Ed, let me play this.
1: I went in there last night and gave her a blessing and, uh, you know, everyone loves her, and, uh, and she's got to know how many people out there love her.
3: Did you see her this morning?
1: I, I kind of snuck in there and and peeked to make sure that this whole thing is real, you know?
3: Yeah, that was her dad, Ed, the morning after she came back home. She was gone for nine months. Many of us uh, know the story. We live through the story. Some of us are too young to remember the story. I covered the story beginning to end as a news reporter for KSL 5 TV, and I'm very excited over the next um, hour and a half. Uh, we're not only going to speak to Elizabeth herself uh, at 1145 when she calls the show um, to tell us how she's doing today. And, of course, she's turned into just a remarkable, remarkable, and she was a remarkable child, Um and she's turned into just a remarkable woman and a mother, and I'm excited to talk to her then, Dave. And we're also going to speak to the author of this new book. I just finished reading it. It's called Un- uh, Unexpected. It is re- being released today. Chris Thomas is going to join us as well and walk us through some of the stories that either we didn't remember or had no idea about, stories about the police and some, I'll just say botched Moments in the investigation, stories about the media and the chaos that was going on behind the scenes, and stories of stress within the family. Uh, We're going to start that coverage. Elizabeth Smart Found,
2: special coverage with David Degenovic
3: on KSL News Radio. It was 20 years ago this month, Dave, that Utah teen Elizabeth Smart was found alive nine months after being kidnapped from her bedroom at Knife Point by a, a disturbed man. I mean, but somebody that couldn't figure out who had kidnapped her for until they were finally found on State Street near the Southtown Mall in Sandy. Uh, I covered that story extensively from beginning to end and beyond. Um, I remember watching her in court. I remember seeing him in court, uh, her, her kidnapper. Uh, and speaking to her father, Ed Smart, in 2003, uh, after she was found during a TV interview I was doing with KSL 5 Television, I was working as a news reporter then, um, here's what he told me during that interview the morning after she came home.
1: I went in there last night and gave her a blessing. And, uh, you know, everyone loves her. And, uh, and she's got to know how many people out there love her.
10: Did you see her this morning?
1: I, I kind of snuck in there and and peeked to make sure that this whole thing is real, you know? Oh, but uh, it's absolutely wonderful. It's wonderful to have her home. I was
4: very early in my news career. Debbie, just a couple of years in, I was a, a news editor at the time. Um, and I... I didn't think there was any chance uh, that they would find her. I remember we did stories for months
3: and months. Well, you had an interesting seat to this story because as a news editor working behind the scenes, you are feverishly looking at all of the interviews that are coming in and editing those interviews, watching all of the video. And so you're processing this from a perspective that not even I as a reporter who was out in the field doing the interviews could, because you're seeing all of the interviews yes. coming in and all of the reporters' coverage.
4: Yeah. And it was an
3: incredible
4: situation because it was the first time that I ever really experienced the national media coming oh, in yeah. and descending droves. in in droves to cover this story. So we, we had not only the local interest but the worldwide, the State, country, worldwide interest in this
3: story. And at 1035, we're going to speak to the author of a new book that's being released today, who's going to take us backstage for those stories that we didn't know about at the time. What was going on with the media? What was going on with the police? And what was going on with the family who was in the throes of chaos that no family would ever anticipate being thrown into when a stranger enters their home in the middle of the night and kidnaps their 14-year-old girl from her bedroom in Salt Lake City. Um, Chris Thomas, the author of the new book, Unexpected, joining the show at 10.35. I've read it. It is a phenomenal book. I'm excited to share some of those behind-the-scenes stories. The, he takes us backstage. It's not even a peek behind the curtain. We are backstage for, for uh, 250 pages what he recalls from the, the, that time because he was in charge of managing the media for the family.
4: You and I lived it. We experienced it. We covered it every step of the way. But I think there's a generation of people, of, of kids, mm-hmm. that don't know this story.
3: So a man breaks into the Smart's home in Salt Lake City in June of 2002. It was, about June, it was June 5th. Finds Elizabeth, takes her at knife point, um, wakes her up from asleep, threatens to kill her and the whole family if she makes the sound. Her little sister Mary Catherine, uh, in bed, faking like she's asleep, is just a smart move, a super smart move because she becomes a main main reason why they're able to figure out later in October who this man is. Um, so she fakes being asleep. And and this man takes Elizabeth out of the home, deep into the woods, behind her home, and ties her up, and, and, and leaves her tied up, and does all kinds of unthinkable things. Um, and Mary Catherine was, and, and smartly waits for a while to get to her parents' bedroom. She's scared. She wants to make sure, probably make sure the house is, you know, imp, you know, he's not there waiting around the corner. How old is she? I, oh, time? she's just young. I can't Eight, remember. Eight nine her. years yeah, old. Really younger, young. Yeah. Uh, family makes the nine one one call to police, and it it was like the the all call went out to all of the members of the of the, of the ward, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, which they were members. Everybody starts showing up. Family starts begging for tips. The media comes from all over the place, uh, and police literally have very little to go on. And even a state police helicopter is up over. In, 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 over pretty close to her I think I remember at one point Elizabeth saying that she could hear the chopper, but they never spot her. Never spot this makeshift camp, um, and she continues to be held captive by these these two people, uh, husband and wife, Wanda Barzee and Brian David Mitchell. But no one knows any of this at the time, and there were so many uh, several missed opportunities to save her along the way. Uh, and free her sooner. First of all, the Salt Lake City Police Department ID'd the wrong man as the prime suspect and stuck with that. Uh, like their shoe was stuck to glue. It was just a really, really... I think it was one of the biggest mistakes um, that I've seen the police department, a police department, make in the state. They took him into custody on a probation violation. He would happened to be a handyman who also worked at the house at some point. But they... Had a criminal history. Yeah, had a criminal yeah. history, uh, caught him on a probation violation, tossed him in jail. Well, in in the weirdest turn of events, the man ends up, Richard Reese ends up dying in custody of a brain aneurysm a few months later. So he's taken into custody almost right away. So by mid-June, police think they have their man. And they're wrong. They're just flat-out wrong. And then they're...
4: because Because this individual... Was not consistent with the description.
3: The fingerprints on the bedpost did not match this man's fingerprints. Yeah.
4: Wow. Yeah. I didn't know about the fingerprints.
3: Yeah. That's what's written. That's what we find in the book, Unexpected. We're going to speak to the author. I see Chris Thomas standing in the hall right now in about seven minutes. Um, They're hiding in plain sight, too. They're seen walking all over Salt Lake City. But nobody knows it's Elizabeth because they're all... Dry. This man, pretend, they're a kidnapper... He's a street preacher, right? He's all dressed in street preacher clothes, but really, what he is is a pedophile. He's a pedophile, yeah. but he does—he's preaching the word of the Lord. And uh, the two women, uh, Wanda Barzee, his wife, and Elizabeth, are, are with him, and they're dressed and and they're—you know—you you can't see their faces. Um, until yeah, all you could see is the eyes. Right, right. right. So until. Um, she Elizabeth convinces them they've been spent the winter in San Diego because it's warmer there. And he, he's actually arrested, arrested in San Diego for trying to break into a church. And he's released and fined and set free on probation. He sells Elizabeth with him, but she's somewhere else. I mean, they're just they're homeless. But but he there was another missed opportunity until she convinces Brian David Mitchell to return to Salt Lake City because she knows that's the only chance she's going to be freed. And lo and behold, this 911 call comes in in March of 2003. There's some homeless-looking people, according to the caller, walking along State Street right by Southtown Mall in Sandy.
11: Can you tell me, is this where I call um, if I think I see that Emmanuel they're looking for? Uh, this is. Where do you think you see him at? I think he is right here across from Southtown Mall on State
3: Street. And she was right. That was the caller, Nancy Montoya. She was 100% spot on. She sees somebody dressed in, you know, looks like a weird hat and two women with him. And she says, I looked at him. I looked at him and he looked at me and I could tell when I saw his face. That's the man. That's when I called. Yep. And then three, four police officers from the Sandy Police Department show up. And Officer Tori Rasmussen knows right away. That's Elizabeth Smart in that, that disguise. So she did not want to admit initially who she was. Isn't that right? That's correct. What did she tell you?
7: She was deceitful in her answers. She wasn't telling us the truth. Uh, Like Officer Jones said, Victor Quisada and Bill O'Neill arrived, and we took her aside. And uh, at that point, you know, I asked them, do you think that looks like Elizabeth Smart? And they go, yeah, it does, you know, her face and stuff. So I started addressing her as Elizabeth. And when I called her by the name Elizabeth instead of Augustine, her head kind of dropped. And you could visibly see that she was upset. You could see her T-shirt moving. Her heart was pounding fast. You could see actually see that and she started to become upset. Um, did that.
3: she finally admit to the fact that she was Elizabeth?
1: No. She um No. Nope. You know, that
3: really was my interview with away. Officer Rasmussen in 2003 after he found Elizabeth Smart and she was whisked away to the uh, to the Sandy Police Department and then reunited with her dad at first and then eventually her entire family, but she did not want to admit that her name wasn't Augustine, which is the fake name that they had given her um, when she was on scene there.
4: I will never forget. I was sitting uh, in my car when we learned. When we learned that she had been found. And when I heard it, it was on KSL News Radio. Yep. Uh, I remember thinking, oh, they found her body. She was dead. And it took me a while to piece together that, that she had been found alive. I was sitting with my wife. I'll never forget Uh where I was. And Debbie...
10: It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison.
8: Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today.
10: I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: It brought me to tears. Yeah. It was it was such a powerful story.
3: Alive and well, we'll have more of the untold stories of what went on behind the scenes when the author of this new book joins us. Elizabeth Smart found
2: special coverage with David Tichanovic
3: on KSL News Radio. I'm really excited uh, that we're about to learn um, from somebody I known for years. Oh, a lot about what we didn't know, what was going on behind the scenes um, in 2002 and 2003 when Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped and missing for nine months. Uh, There's a new book that was released today. Today. Uh, The title of it is Unexpected. The author is Chris Thomas. He's sitting in studio with Dave and I right now, Um, and he really goes into so many details about what was going on behind the scenes leading up to the point where she was found alive. Um, I remember speaking to her dad at SMART after uh, she was found alive, and in fact, um, all of the media, I remember surrounding him, I think it was right outside the police department or right outside their home, probably both
1: places. Elizabeth and Mary Catherine just hugged and were just bawling. And uh, we had, William was playing with his friend across the street this afternoon. And when he came in there, I mean, it was just a big hug. And and, uh, Elizabeth didn't want to let go of him. And it's just a, it's just so great. It's uh, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And talking about the family
3: reunion.
4: Yeah, it's as incredible a story as we've ever had in this state. And it's unsurprising if you've been through it, if you follow this story, that we can't let it go. We still have a fascination even twenty years later.
3: No one lived it more, other than the family than Chris Thomas, who is the author of unexpected um the book that is out today you are also the public relations point person for the family you were kind of thrown into this at a very young age 20 something 28 29. 29 years old paint us a picture as the pr person you get the call that this family needs help um and you get there, and then all of a sudden, the entire world of media comes running, and you're dealing with the family's emotions, the protecting the family from the media, and the main goal of finding Elizabeth.
12: You know, I, I think that's a big part of the book, is trying to describe that, Debbie. It's it's not something that you can easily put into perspective. Uh, going back to that, a lot of people ask, how did you get involved? And Elizabeth's cousin, Sierra, started an internship with my firm two weeks before Elizabeth was abducted. And we had a lot of other connections as well. My business partners at the time were connected to the family in several ways. And it was like it was meant to be. We volunteered to help, thinking that it would be a couple of days. They'd find her. you know, She'd be alive. We'd go to celebration. We'd go back to our day jobs. And that would be it. And amazing, we're talking about it 20 years later. But at that time, it was 20-hour days uh, at one point, there were eight of us working full time with the media. I, I counted eighty cameras at one press conference. Uh, just the sheer number of, of media and national and international media trying to get anything—and and it was a difficult case, Dave. I think we talked about this early on, where some days there was not a lot going on. Yep. And so, how do you feed the beast? Uh, and I you know know—I'm a former journalist, and so a lot of this was okay. The search effort's taking place. You know, Ten thousand people have come out this week. Who are they? Where are they searching? How are they searching? You know, Trying to find information that we could provide so that the media could tell a decent story. But it was nonstop. And then as, as the investigation developed, it felt like things were happening constantly. Uh, it felt like you know, being in a newsroom but on steroids and, and it never ends.
4: So having that direct contact with the, the family – And trying to juggle these emotions where they are mourning, they're terrified, and then at the same time having this understanding that because this story is in the media, it provides other resources and it keeps the story going and volunteers pour out. What was the the family going through as they're torn talking about the worst possible thing that could happen and still dealing with uh, their own emotions?
12: You know, it, it was a mix of emotions and seeing that I had to be very clinical in my approach Uh and, and I would feel it. And sometimes at the end of the day, after putting on a straight face uh that, you know, it would come out and it would be it would be really heavy. They were the most courageous people I've ever worked around. Uh They understood, made it very clear, like if we're going to cooperate there, you know, the media is a two edged sword. Uh They. They'll, they'll cut and help get the story out, and they'll cut you apart as well. None of us are perfect. All of us have flaws and skeletons in our closet, and they're, and they're going to find those out, and you're just going to have to deal with the good, bad, and indifferent. And they said, we don't care what it takes. We don't care what they do to us. Whatever it takes to bring Elizabeth back, we're willing to do it.
3: Eventually, uh, the Salt Lake Tribune, during the search for Elizabeth, ends up writing an article that alludes that the kidnapping was an inside job, that a family member or family members had something to do with that. You spell that out in your book. And it took me back to 2002, 2003, when negative stories about the family were beginning to surface, which took the eye off the the prize which was recovering elizabeth safely and that really ends up kind of quashing the search efforts i think you wrote that searchers stopped showing up after that article largely which was which was not accurate that the family was not involved at all in her kidnapping uh but that you said just put a, put a damper on search efforts.
12: You know, it was it was a different phase at that point. It's interesting, in hindsight, Maggie Haberman, the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, journalist with the New York Times who covers the White House, she was the first one to write a book about the Smart case. And she likened that Tribune story as igniting a firestorm that threatened to rival the JonBenét Ramsey case. And so it changed from that point of telling this nice story about the search effort and working around the police and the investigation to how do we make sure that the story and, and Elizabeth are kept top of mind. Uh, how does the family and, – and, you know, attorneys come out in situations like that, and they categorically deny, and it's without merit, and all those things. And as the public, what do we say when we hear that? I roll. I roll, exactly. And so, you know, the, the only thing – there's no there's no evidence to say they weren't involved, so the best thing they can do is go out and explain how they cooperated and continue to come out. Uh, you know, the, the, the Ramsey family, um, to their detriment, we learned from this, they – they hunkered down and sent their attorney out. Uh, we did the opposite. We put as many members of the Smart Family as possible, tried to do it in a controlled way to show that they had nothing to hide, that they would continue to cooperate and be public.
3: I, oh, I, I want to continue down this path. I just, can I just have a few more minutes, Dave, with, with Chris on this? The, yeah, I covered the police investigation from the very beginning. I remember the Salt Lake City Chief of Police meeting me on the sidewalk Uh, the morning after up at Shriners Hospital, and I was trying to get an interview with Elizabeth Smart's mom, Lois, and she became unavailable for for obvious reasons. Um, But along the way, my feeling was in this case, this is just my personal view from covering the story, that Salt Lake City Police Department did not seem like they could hit water if they fell out of a boat on this. There was an attempted kidnapping of Elizabeth Smart's cousin, which you write about in the book, and I was fully aware of, in July, shortly after she was kidnapped, up in Cottonwood Heights, where somebody cuts through a screen, and they write that off as a teenage prank. It it was Brian David Mitchell trying to get to Elizabeth Smart's cousin because he was a pedophile looking to take on, quote-unquote, more wives. And Elizabeth was victim number one. Her cousin was almost victim number two, and we have – and you write about this. The police department really dismissed that.
12: Not only did they dismiss it, they told the family and and me to lie about it. If you're asked about it, under no circumstances does this come public. We've got to be able to investigate this fully. I believe they were sending the window screen to Quantico, Virginia, to the FBI to analyze. I mean it was like you got to give us time. And, and at one point I had to give a very creative answer to KSL's Ben Winslow at the time – uh, and and a month later, when it finally came out, the national media was gone. It was kind of during that period the interest waned, the satellite trucks picked up, and 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 the police could then say, yeah, we think it was a teenage prank. Uh, and so it was unfortunate because if you really think about that, the, there was just too many too many ironies. Okay, we don't believe not in coincidences,
3: deep. right? We, right. Especially in, I'm not a cop, but in police work. We just don't believe in coincidences. And literally, her cousins, her favorite cousins' home in Cottonwood Heights. Uh, just you know, a few miles away from where Elizabeth was kidnapped, and not only that, Chris, they they make the prime suspect Richard Reesey arrest him within days of the kidnapping, and hits the wrong dude. And they will not, despite the fingerprints inside the home not matching Richard Reesey's, they they continue on until Brian David Mitchell is found walking with Elizabeth Smart down State Street in Sandy. Thinking it's Richarisi, and he's long since dead because he ends up dying of a brain aneurysm in jail.
12: And if that was one of the big uh, tensions in there. A really interesting point to that, too, that's very incriminating is when the Richard Reesey news broke, it broke on a weekend. And I would be the family spokesperson on the weekend. I typically wanted them to be – you wanted it from the horse's mouth, Debbie. You didn't want to hear from me. And so (laughs) – but on the weekends to give them a break, I did it. And that's when the Reesey news broke and Ed gave me an idea of what was going on. I did the interviews and then we talked later and he said, hey, something kind of strange happened. Mary Catherine snuck in while I was watching you respond to the news. And she said, dad, why is Richard on TV? He didn't do it.
3: He was a ha- he had been a handyman at the handyman. house. He wasn't she in the room
12: him. that night. And they let the police know that. So very early on, Mary Catherine dismissed. She, she even told her cousin later with no adults around. I
4: don't know why they keep focusing on Richard. He wasn't the guy who did it. So she knew Richard. She recognized him. And that's how she could speak definitively. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going
12: to say Richard was a, a handyman who'd worked on the house for a period of time and knew the kids really well. So she was very familiar with Richard.
3: Here's Angela Risi, who's since passed away, Richard's uh, widow, uh, speaking on to the Ed Yates of KSL Five TV on the day that Elizabeth Smart was found. She was watching television.
0: I jumped up and I started
11: crying and just, you know, my phone was ringing off the hook and
3: it's a, it's. Had she, I'm. I'm right about this in the book. Did, had she not given him an alibi? Happy for the Smarts. Uh, at all? Did he not have an alibi? Is that that why he was an easy focus for the Salt Lake City uh,
12: R- Richard had an alibi; they just didn't find it to be very strong. And Angela was a part of it. I, I, my heart breaks, you know, for Angela. Even during the, the the case, she was somebody who was very sincere, and and you know, Ed Ed really connected with her as well when we met her.
3: Will you stick around? I, we want to continue this conversation. Um, I want to talk. Let our listeners know what happened to you after Elizabeth. Smart was found and her dad Ed gave you a call and that call broke your heart. It just broke your heart. Elizabeth Smart found
2: special coverage with David DeGenevic on
3: KSL
2: News Radio.
3: We're speaking live right now to Chris Thomas. He's the author of a book that was released today. It's the title of it is Unexpected. It is about uh, the journey um, to get Elizabeth back home safely. He was the PR person, the public relations person, the point of contact for the press. He was working to insulate the media during that horrific nine months uh, from the family or insulate the family from the media and also dealing with, you know, new details that were coming out from law enforcement. Some of them were just not even accurate. And so he's trying to juggle all of that.
4: We've heard a lot of the story from Elizabeth's point of view, what happened during her captivity We haven't heard a lot from what was going on behind the scenes with the family. And Chris, uh, let's just jump right in. What happened? Where were you? What happened with the family when they found out that Elizabeth had been found?
12: So on that day, there had been some negative press, and we were working to respond to that. Uh, Nationally, there was quite a bit of interest. And so Ed and I were getting together uh, and, and planning for a press briefing. And he called me uh, a little bit before and said, hey, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to be late. I've been summoned to the Sandy City Police Department. I've been told not to stop and not to call anybody, but I, I thought I'd let you know. And fortuitously, one of the only people I kept in contact with from high school, my high school basketball teammate, Jason Burnett, was a detective with the Sandy City Police Department. Yep. And so I called. It, started calling Jason incessantly, and he finally answered pretty abruptly, and he... And, and he said, I can't tell you anything. And, and I said, well, I'd be eternally grateful if you did. And he called me back a little while later and he said, the police chief finally told me to answer the phone because you wouldn't stop calling. And we brought in an indigent uh, teenager that we believe is Elizabeth Smart. And I paused and was just emotion was just blaring. And I said, Jason, where did you find the body? I mean, at that time, it wasn't real that she would be back. And he said, "Now she's in the room next to me." And I was able to get a hold of Ed, and and you know, shortly thereafter, they were reunited. But it it was surreal. Uh, and about forty five minutes before it hit the news, and I sat there against the wall, and I, I had no idea. It's like a tsunami is about to hit me.
3: And then the story your story and the journey with the family a lot of the, you did in the beginning was volunteer and then uh, you know and and I've read in your book that you just dedicated so many hours that it was putting a strain on your new marriage uh, i certainly was taking an emotional toll on you because of all the demands out the day day after day from the media um y- you instruct the family and i think rightfully so to turn their anger toward you know Brian David Mitchell towards something positive. And so the Amber Alert, getting a national Amber
1: Alert. And I'm calling on you and I'm calling on Congress and I'm calling on them to pass the Amber Alert now. Children cannot afford you fumbling around and that's what you're doing. And so
3: you're working with the White House to get the family back to D.C. for this major announcement about the Amber Alert and you're trying to insulate Elizabeth from the White House press corps when Ed Smart calls your cell phone and tells you what?
12: That the family's not comfortable with the, the, the direction I was going. That they really feel Elizabeth should be front and center and uh, that they don't need my help anymore.
4: You got fired. I got fired.
3: You write about this in your book. It was a shocking moment to me. I'd known you for many months and I'd worked with you so closely. And just for the record, you were phenomenal to work with. Oh, thank you. And when I read that, and you, you saved that nugget for the end, and I wept. I was bawling by the time I finished the book. How did you recover from that you know, with, your, with the family?
12: It was difficult. You talk about my wife and being a newlywed, and she was an incredible support, especially at that moment. Uh, And it took some perspective. I was crushed. And at the same time, I had seen what they had been through. And I I still don't understand. I walked close to them, but I didn't walk in their shoes. And seeing everything that they had gone through, uh, it's easy to be upset and look at it that way. I think I provide this context in the book as well. You have to give a little grace to that. Um, and, and there was an important lesson that I write about that I learned early in my childhood, where there was a huge disappointment, and the way I responded to it was to take my proverbial ball and go home. And in this case, I realized, like I, you know, the only person that lost was me when I was a child, and so I, I kept a friendship. The, the Smarts, I grew so close to them during this situation. It would have been such a loss. Uh, it would have been justified, but it would have been such a loss to just not have anything to do with them. And and as a result of of staying in contact and and remaining friends, it it led to working with Elizabeth, which has been just an unbelievably, uh, an unbelievable blessing in my life, uh, working with her. And, and, you know,
4: she's like a sister to me. Chris Thomas, thank you for for joining us. I look forward to reading this it just released today right yes
12: today I, debbie I has already read it she read got the it. early copy
3: yeah but... it's on amazon
12: it's on audible as well everyone here sends to listen and it's my voice so if my voice doesn't drive you crazy you can get nine and a half hours more of it
3: you voiced it
12: i did i had to really push the publisher but i really Wonderful. wanted to do it
3: guess what so. i'm listening to on my way home <laughs> today i've
12: got a credit You'll hear me really fast, though, if you're like me, because I... 1.4? Yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't typically endorse books or anything like this not my thing. People need to read this. They absolutely need to read it. It's so well done, and how you also connected several of the experiences during the Elizabeth Smart kidnapping to experiences you had in your childhood um, that actually ended up preparing you to deal with the crush of media and the... Crisis within the family and the crisis within the crisis, Chris. Phenomenally written. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. I know it was a labor of love for you, and I'm sure it was difficult to get this. How many years did it take you to write it?
12: It's about three. three it's about years. three. Yeah.
3: It took three years. Chris Thomas, the author of Unexpected, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. Today. Oh, thank
2: you, Elizabeth Smart. Found special coverage with David DeGenovik on KSL News Radio.
3: As we wait for Elizabeth Smart to phone in live to the show, we're it's going to be an encore performance right now with author uh, Chris Thomas, who wrote the book Unexpected. It was released today. It's the backstory of finding Elizabeth smart and growing up in the culture of an American religion.
4: Chris, when this story came out and we learned eventually what happened, that Elizabeth, who came from a a very religious home, her family is very religious uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, and then to be abducted by a religious fanatic, uh, to be indoctrinated uh, during that time, and and brainwash, and the, the horrific aspects of that, can you can you talk to us from from your experience when you were were basically running the PR for the Smart family during Elizabeth's abduction? What was that like when all these worlds are colliding? Sure, sure. And I, I think you know, it, and I get into
12: the culture the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints a fair amount, uh, both. Uh, The part of this book, the unexpected part maybe, is is some experiences growing up in the culture and how that prepared me for that experience, how the culture uh, played an important role in the search effort and and in making that such a a big story. And then you talk about, you know, toward the end, that was a really complicated situation when um, she was rescued and Brian David Mitchell was arrested. From the smart family standpoint, it didn't make sense to address the issue of uh, religious fanaticism and, and polygamy. Uh, it, it, our focus was on Elizabeth and the fact that she survived it. Uh, it but in the book, I do kind of get into that issue. Uh, you know, even Elizabeth said in her own book that, yeah, I call him a fanatic, but really all he cared about was sex and alcohol. You know, it was just a means to get what he wanted. And and, and I think we see that a lot. We've seen a prolifer- proliferation, there's a word, uh, on Netflix and, and and Hulu and other places of these uh, docu-series that that look at the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they often make out these people who are very isolated, a, a small percentage of a small percentage of, of of the splinter groups that are crazy and deranged, and, and, and they make it about religion. And, and I really often feel that that is exaggerated at a minimum and oftentimes unfair. So that was something I wanted to address for sure.
3: Your experiences as a child growing up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you point out several experiences that you had along the way that really helped prepare you to become the main PR person for the family, to deal with all the media, to deal with the stuff that was going on behind the scenes with the police department, and to deal with their own emotions as they were trying to find Elizabeth alive. And there was one incident that you wrote about when you were a child where you were kind of put in charge of bringing boys who had gotten away from the church back to the church. And you so badly wanted to pay for them to go to a, a Utah jazz game. And you finally convinced everybody to go to this jazz game. You didn't end up buying the tickets, although you'd offered to. And then you get to the parking lot to join them uh, to to drive down to the the jazz game here at the Salt Palace at the time, and they'd left you. Yeah, And I've thought about that as a child when you get so disappointed. It's almost like, you know, you've just been left out, hung out to dry. And that reminded me of when the Smart family, after she was rescued, had called you up and they essentially fired you. From the job that you'd held for nine months, did you make that connection because I sure did in reading that book
12: it was interesting, Debbie. you just brought that up off the air, and i I did not, and that's an absolute connection I, you know I try to be very honest uh that was incredibly disappointing i mean to, to provide a little more context on that, I said to my mom i'm done i am i'm quitting the church i'm out uh, and I that because think of I'll, that incident, because they of left that, you incident at that at that point, and my mom said let's you know she was very good about it it wasn't no you will not it was I think you should think about this, I think you should you know let the emotions uh, dissipate and then and then give this some real thought and if you make that decision, honey, that's your choice, uh which I think was very mature of her uh, at the same time, yeah, dealing with disappointment. Uh, I write about uh, my neighbor who was a hidden broken war hero who was an alcoholic and and having uh so many different uh, issues with him over the years. You know, he taught me how to have thick skin, and also when I really learned who he was, he taught me how not to judge people how to how to take things at, at not take them at face value, but really um, try to avoid the
4: stories we tell ourselves and and to look beyond that. Chris, we appreciate you joining us. Chris Thomas uh, wrote a memoir. It's called Unexpected. The Backstory of Finding Elizabeth Smart and Growing Up in the Culture of an American Religion. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Debbie's already read the book. I look forward to it, oh, but thank you.
3: Down. I couldn't put it down. i I disappointed myself that I, I, I swallowed like 150 pages in like a day. <laughs> I, I was. I, I know you do. And I'm going to go back and read it again. I'm also going to listen to it on Audible because it's in your own voice, and I love that. Thank you. Uh, a woman you know very well, Chris, that you helped bring home 20 years ago, and you worked so hard, and you gave everything to Elizabeth Smart calling the show in just a few minutes. Are you going to stick around for that? Absolutely. And right. She
12: is incredible. It's always a treat, whether personally or privately, to hear her. T- Dave and Dijanovic
2: have inside sources.
3: Boyd Matheson uh, back in studio today with us. Thank goodness, Boyd. Thank goodness. It's just not a good day without Boyd in the House. So we're going to talk about how congressional hearings have become um, more political theater and less about the actual hearing. That's, yeah, That's it's every hearing now. It's it's almost like a grandstanding.
4: It feels like, well, it doesn't feel like it. It's exactly what (laughs) it is. Like, let's stop
3: tiptoeing around it. It is a circus. They are absolutely, like, just like clowns in a circus so last week you spoke to uh david is it beer beer yeah uh from the what what is He's it from cato, cato, institute. Cato, cato institute what does that stand for do, do we know cato institute okay oh, yeah. boyd gives me the long okay. holy cow
4: i just <laughs> always wonder
3: uh, he made an interesting comment about how congressional hearings have changed it's uh
7: very rare that you get a question it's usually a statement and if that, and often it's delivered as uh, in a shouting tone of voice. So I, I would, I was not impressed with my. Well, uh, it's not my first hearing, but first hearing of this Congress, at which I was uh, a witness. Uh, it didn't seem like there was much interest in mm. getting to the facts as opposed to grandstanding.
4: So, Boyd, help us out here. What 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 is the role of the congressional hearing?
9: So Congress can have these hearings in these different committees, uh, and the idea is to get more information to inform legislation and what needs to be done to correct something or solve a problem or deal with an issue. Uh, And so here you had – this was a Homeland Security Committee hearing. So they call witnesses. So they're talking about immigration and the border. Uh, David Beer from Cato uh, knows his way around immigration like very few people in this country. He's done all the deep dives, uh, and so there he is to provide Congress with information that would be helpful to craft good policy for the American people. And uh, as is the case in most of these hearings, and I don't know why we call them hearings anymore because nobody's listening. Uh, everyone was just there to to make their their statement, to get their social media post, to hopefully land themselves on some you know late night uh, cable news network. And he spent more time trying to just say what you're saying is, is not accurate. Uh, and so I'll give you one example. Uh, we've talked a lot on this program about the fentanyl crisis. And there were some members of the committee who just spewed off that, you know, it was uh, this administration's fault. They have blood on their hands because of this fentanyl crisis. Uh, the reality is 97.5% of the fentanyl that's coming into our country – is being brought in at legal checkpoints. These are not people going across rivers in backpacks, coming across in at legal checkpoints, and they're American citizens. Mm-hmm. So here you have something that should be very much important to those on the committee. But
3: they can't say anything about
9: it. But they don't want to. They don't want to hear that. And so instead, they do their grandstanding moment and and go on to the next thing. And and as as we've talked before, they'll talk for four and a half minutes out of their five minutes and, and give the the witness a few yeah buts, yeah buts, uh, and then they're on to the next thing.
3: I was watching an exchange between uh, Matt Gates, of Florida. With Department of Defense Undersecretary, where he held up a news article, referred to it as an investigative report having to deal with um, weapons in ukraine, mm. and he labeled it as an investigative news story, and he moved to enter it into evidence at that congressional hearing when the DoD Undersecretary for like policy. Who was being questioned interrupted him and said are you talking about the chinese propaganda
4: the global <laughs> times from
3: china from china yeah because i don't pay attention to chinese propaganda that makes these false yeah. allegations and i don't it was like he was trying to take a moment representative gates was trying to take a moment that he could capture for social media for twitter absolutely for facebook and really, just see, I'm, I'm catching these uh, these people who are, you know, high up in the government, in our own government, in lies and in missteps. In reality, he was the one who ended up getting caught. Yeah. And it was that moment when I saw that, Boyd, I thought, what are these hearings all about?
9: Yeah, and, and that was one of the interesting discussions we had with David Beer was, is it time to change the nature of what these hearings are all about? Would it be better to have yes. just written testimony in, and then allow members to submit questions after that could be responded to? There's there's a lot of ways to get the work done, and and to be really clear, these uh, these witnesses at these hearings are
3: important. Yeah, uh, they
9: can influence public policy. They also and they seem have,
3: pretty smart to me. Really like I want to hear yeah.
9: from them. Yeah, and it doesn't matter if they're from the left or the right. They're yeah. they're really smart people, and it should be part of the debate. And so part of the problem is we're no longer willing to have the debate. We only want to have declarative statements from our side of whatever the issue is
4: taking away the cameras oh. uh, does
9: that change yeah this is this is one of the this is one of the conundrums of our time, yeah. and that is we want transparency. We want to see what's going on. We want to hear it. But and who so watches
3: we... C-SPAN? Come on. I only watch it on Friday nights at <laughs> when you're 9 o'clock, me. <laughs> when I'm texting you, and you're watching C-SPAN, too. We're like, did you see that episode on C-SPAN? Like, who really sits down and watches these? Yeah. That, that, you and, know? and
9: it's not its not a lot, um, but I do think the transparency – it's just like in the courtroom. Uh we, we always have the debate of should we have, you know, cameras in the courtroom and, and we have that in so many places. Should we have cameras in the Supreme Courtroom? We still don't have that, should we? Uh mm-hmm. would that level of transparency be a good thing or would it make the attorneys more performative uh in what they're doing? Mm-hmm. Same same with control of the cameras in Congress. It's been that fixed C span camera. Uh we know that during the vote for the Speaker of the House, uh, they gave them free reign to shoot whatever. Do we want that? Do we want to have those moments captured? Um, and so to me, that's a that's part of a great debate in terms of where's the transparency effective? Where does it lead to performative politics rather than good policymaking?
4: Well, I, th- I think it's so strange. Transparency can come in a lot of different ways. Mm. Transparency doesn't necessarily mean I need to have a camera in your face yeah. for it to be transparent. Give us the, the verbatim. Give us yeah. the written mm. statement where if if you're so inclined, you can read it. But when you start adding a camera and a microphone, how can you not start performing?
9: <laughs> yeah, it, cha- it changes everything, uh, and and it's a sad it's a sad part of where we are as a society is that we are so used to getting the visual uh, that very few people are willing to do the hard work and heavy lifting to actually go read it on their own and dig through it on their own. So part of it's where we become a little bit lazy, a little sloppy uh, individually. Uh, but at the same time you know we've we've got to have a, a process where we can have good question and good debate mm-hmm. I mean these hearings these hearings should be good t v if they're done properly, yeah. but if it's just performative stuff, then everybody rolls their eyes and it's like oh, oh okay, there's so... Matt Gates next yeah. fundraising email yeah. uh, or you know there's uh, somebody from the left you know that's gonna be their next big push on social media uh, but we've got to get to the the questions and if we're gonna have experts come in let' him, let them talk let him I'm him sorry,
3: talk. I just cut you off yeah.
9: <laughs> You should let me tell. Wow, Debbie!
4: <laughs> I did. The I, irony is so thick right now. I
3: know. If I said I did that on purpose, I was waiting. I saw I, you were coming to the end of your sentence. You I'm like, it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna to interrupt, interrupt, interrupt the beginning kind of, like, of your the middle of your, your sentence with the beginning of my sentence. If I want
9: your opinion, Boyd, I'll give what it. What if to we you. did this
3: all the time, all the time, Boyd Matheson? Thank you so much for baiting us into a phenomenal and very important conversation this morning. Look I'll forward to read the global. Stop Times interrupting now. me. Dave, stop interrupting me. But I do love that you pointed out it was the Global Times of China. <laughs>
0: the Global
4: Times of Chinese Eye on the Hill, 2023 special
2: coverage on Utah's Morning News.
10: No, oh, I don't. I don't.
3: I don't know why we're suddenly calling ourselves Utah's Morning News, but that's phenomenal. <laughs> Tim and Amanda, move aside. This is actually the Dave and Dujanovic show. <laughs> So the question that we've been uh, asking multiple times during the legislative session is, where is water? Where is water? It felt like for a while there, Dave, the lawmakers weren't doing much about it. So we're going to pick the brain of somebody who has been following it in just a moment who can tell us what ended up happening to all the water legislation.
4: I think part of the frustration is we we want a magic wand. We want the state legislature to... Bippity boppity boo it and just fix the water problems, it, it's not that easy. So sometimes it's allocating money, it's providing resources, it's updating uh, farmers' watering equipment, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's, there's so much to it, though what we want is fairy dust.
3: Laura Briefer, director of Salt Lake City Public Utilities, did we get fairy dust?
10: We didn't get. Us. But we, we did get a lot of um, bills proposed and some uh, were, were passed by the legislature this session and, and some did not make it, but will probably be discussed during the interim uh, quite a bit.
4: Is there anything that intrigues you that you look at and say, hey, you know what, That this actually might do some good?
10: Yeah, you know, what I found during this session uh, amongst all of the bills was just a general theme of building upon what happened last year and the year before that. Uh, we had quite a few bills regarding water-efficient landscaping uh, to encourage more, more uh, conservation uh, statewide, but also in the Great Salt Lake Basin as well. Uh, for instance, we had Senator Sandal's uh, Senate Bill 118 for water-efficient landscaping. We also had HB 450, which addresses landscaping efficiencies specific to homeowners associations where uh, oftentimes bylaws govern landscaping and people have gotten frustrated that they couldn't uh, do water-efficient landscaping uh, pursuant to those bylaws. So, you know, a few of those types of things. And then we saw these sort of wide-reaching coordination efforts. So there was uh, a bill which creates the Office of the Great Salt Lake Commissioner, or as I've heard some people describe it, the Lorax of the Lake, um, that would, you know.
3: <laughs> Sorry.
10: I, I, I wasn't expecting really you to take on the
3: co- the role of comedian. That's awesome. Okay, the Lorax <laughs> of the Lake, we're using that from here on out. Go ahead, finish your thought.
10: <laughs> well, yeah, so, I mean, that, that really showed uh, and actually tried to address the need of Bringing together the multiple state agencies t- under kind of one one office, so that con- so that decisions regarding the lake were are being done in coordination with each other. Then we also saw HB three hundred seven, which was creating Utah Waterways, which is essentially uh, a nonprofit organization that also attempts to coordinate a, a lot of different efforts. Along and both of those bills came with some funding as well. So we saw. A lot of work, sort of in the, the very detailed, nuanced uh, approach in changing state policy, as well as sort of this stepping back to this broader view of um, how we can be more effective as a collective community regarding Great Salt Lake. I think,
4: uh, as we're as we're talking to Laura Briefer, the director of Salt Lake City Public Utilities, one of the biggest questions I have and one of the the terms that we heard early on in the session was shepherding trying to get that water that was coming out of the the mountains all the way to the Great Salt Lake but as the director of public utilities you know that water that comes out is dispersed and used do you what do you do with any excess or how do you measure the excess and how do you know that the stuff that you send downstream so to speak is going to end up in the Great Salt Lake.
10: Yeah, I think I think you're touching on a really important point. So uh, another way to think about this is as we're asking people to conserve water to protect lake levels in Great Salt Lake, how do we account for that conserved water? As you say, you know, from the mountains to the Jordan River to Great Salt Lake, in the entire watershed, uh, you know, how do we account for that conserved water um, to know that? We're making an impact because that water can be shepherded to Great Salt Lake. I think that's going to be something that gets discussed a lot more seriously during this interim session. It's a it's a very com- complicated issue, technically, um, and there are also some water rights um, issues that that we would probably want to, um, you know review alongside that and so we could look for that be, being a big topic of conversation over the interim
3: uh laura briefer before we let you go just just i think a lot of people will want to know maybe sometimes we get confused as just consumers and people who you know flip on the tap and the water comes out um does it look like there will be sweeping restrictions at all from capitol hill in terms of water use this summer and if not from capitol hill how about from salt lake city
10: it doesn't from from a municipal standpoint, it doesn't appear that there will be sweeping restrictions on water use. there There will be more um, incentive programs available to residents for land, for instance, landscape efficiency or different types of um, drought tolerant planting on their landscapes. so it's it's much more of a carrot than a stick uh, with respect to what we saw come out of the legislature this year. Um, With respect to Salt Lake City, as you probably know, we're in stage two of our water shortage contingency plan. That's where we entered the water year in October um, in. And we're monitoring conditions with respect to our great snowpack right now to see if that uh, stage will be lifted to perhaps stage one. I think it's important to note that one good water year like we're going to have this year uh, may not make as much of a dent yeah. in the longer term drought condition and uh, and also the issue with um Great Salt Lake is going to persist. You know, we're going to need multiple good water years to help with Great Salt Lake.
4: Laura Briefer, thank you for joining us, Director of Salt Lake City Public Utilities.
3: But you're glad to hear no restrictions probably this year, Dave, as a a guy who has a a backyard full of grass and probably a front yard full of grass. I haven't seen your house ever. You've never invited me over. Nope. That's super weird, but okay. <laughs> um, so no restrictions, more the, the carrot approach. They're not going to come whack you.
4: Yeah, and I think a lot of times um, accountability, incentives, they kind of go hand in hand. If we know what we're using, if we understand what we should be using, I think people largely will will do the right thing without – the, the hammer or the stick coming down and being mandated.
3: It was 20 years ago this month that this call came in to 911.
11: 911. Yes, um, could you tell me, is this our call, um, if I think I see that Emmanuel they're looking for? Uh, this is. Where do you think you see him at?
3: We're a man who'd been right sketched. As the kidnapper of Elizabeth Smart had taken her into the hills above Salt Lake City uh, and then eventually to San Diego and then back to Salt Lake City and actually was busted in Sandy, Utah, was found. And Elizabeth Smart was found alive and well as well. Uh, 20 years ago this month, it's hard to believe that it was so long ago, uh, Elizabeth's is doing very very well she's a mom she's a champion for survivors and she is also calling the show live in 15 minutes elizabeth smart found
2: special coverage with david DeGenovic on ksl news radio
0: elizabeth is a wonderful girl and she is strong and she is courageous and she is a hero and she did everything she needed to do to survive and because of what she did she is here back with us again after being gone for nine
3: months that's an excerpt from an interview i did in march of 2003 when i worked for ksl5 television i interviewed elizabeth's aunt her dad two police officers from the sandy police department after she was found alive and well walking with her two kidnappers in sandy utah
4: to this day uh, the most incredible story i've ever been a part of um in fact, I, I was absolutely convinced. I think most of the world was convinced that she was dead and that we were just trying to find her body. And I remember sitting in the car in a in a mall parking lot with my wife when it said that Elizabeth Smart had been found. I was convinced it was, well, her body, clearly. And it took me several minutes to register that they were talking about her in the present, that she was still alive and she had been returned to her family. And objective as you want to be in this business, I couldn't help but cry.
3: Yep. Chris Thomas authored Unexpected, a book that was, is released right now. You can get it. I saw it on Amazon. You said it's also on Audible. Chris, uh, we're waiting for Elizabeth to call. I'm told she's just wrapping up another interview and we'll be dialing any moment now. So we're going to speak to Elizabeth Smart in just a moment. but Dave, you asked an excellent question during the commercial break of Chris. Why do you think this story still resonates to the extent it does 20 years later?
12: It was interesting in that day. Uh, So many of us adopted Elizabeth as part of our family, our extended family. I think we all felt this real connection. And because so many people searched, so many people prayed, it wasn't just a news story that people were passively watching. They were actively participating in it. And the other point of it is – what Elizabeth's done with it, uh, to see somebody who went through something absolutely horrific and, and has, has taken that and made it something so positive and is such an incredible role model. Uh, it, it just – it is. It's crazy we're talking about it the way we are 20 years later. Here we are, you know, KSL devoting several hours to talking about it. But we still care. Right.
3: Well, it did sweep up the entire community, the entire nation, and to some extent, the entire world. We had so many reporters from all over the nation in Salt Lake City, Utah, covering this story. And I think the reason it has resonated so many years later, and in fact, there, I know a few years ago, you recommended me, to I think it was to CNN, to sit down and do an interview with their producers who'd come into town, and I did, for a major special that they were doing on Elizabeth Smart. I think it resonates in a lot of ways because we never expected to find Elizabeth alive. And then when you hear the backstory, which you spell out in your book, so many angles and things that were going on behind the scenes that people didn't know at the time were actually going on, that this is a wild story that takes on all kinds of different directions from uh, flubs at the Salt Lake City Police Department with, you know, Pointing out the wrong guy and arresting him on probation violation to the fact that her cousin's home was broken into or almost broken into by Brian David Mitchell, the kidnapper, just weeks after. I mean, wouldn't you agree? This just, is just a wild story.
12: Well, it is. And then when her sister, Mary Catherine, remembers who the voice, you know, whose voice it was in her room that night but it, and it's discounted.
3: Right, by the police department. By
12: the police. They don't want it to come out. I mean, they, they, there's a lot of that. The tension between Ed and Lois Smart and, and the Smarts in the police department over five months. Uh, and, and finally defiling them and coming forward with that information. It was, you know, Elizabeth and I, we were talking about this the other day. She may still be out there
4: had had they not done that. Mary Catherine, her, how old was she when uh, when Elizabeth nine, was taken? Nine when she was taken. She yeah. was nine, uh, she played such a crucial role, but it did feel like she was being discounted or not believed. What what happened there? I, it, it just didn't follow. I mean, th- th- there was this
12: theory. There was so much circumstantial evidence on Richard Riese. Uh, yes. and, and what she was saying didn't align with that. Uh, you look at Reese, He was in prison when there was the attempted break-in at the Wrights home. Uh, you know, Mary Catherine saying that it, it wasn't Richard and then later saying who it was – The police were so sure. I mean, we were told at one point they were 99.99999% sure to our faces that it was Richard Reese and that we were potentially embarrassing Mary Catherine by coming forward with information.
3: They have him um, in jail on a a probation violation when he dies unexpectedly um, of a brain aneurysm. Um, I think it was in August of 2002, and he was arrested just days after... Uh, the break-in, but to go back to what we we're talking about in the ten o'clock hour, the fingerprints on the bedpost and I believe on the window or the door yeah. of the home didn't match Richard Reese's at all. And so the police boxed themselves into a theory that was inaccurate, Flat sure. wrong. Sure. That had to be frustrating for you when you were working with the with the with the Smarts.
12: And really frustrating. I think we paint with a broad brush sometimes as well. And you know, in this case, there were several in law enforcement who were not in the herd, who actually were even criticized for we're not being open-minded enough about this. Uh, And, and they collaborated with the smarts, the extended smart family, kind of on the side talking through this. And, and, you know, some of those people played an important role. So I I always want to be careful that, yeah, there was this herd mentality, but there were, and and I believe the vast majority of people as well. There were flubs. I don't think there was anyone in law enforcement, anyone in the media, anyone anywhere that didn't want to have a positive outcome and weren't doing everything they could uh, to help find Elizabeth.
4: How did the family react? Uh, to the fact that she was so close for so long.
12: You know, it, it. you hear that. And I had the opportunity a few years ago to hike up to that camp. And until you've been up there, it, it, it's so close, but it's cut out of the side of a mountain. And it is so thick. I was there with a crew from NBC, uh, Meredith Vieira, and, and several photographers. It took us four hours to hike that mile up to that camp and they nearly had heart attacks i mean it was like it took everything elizabeth was like a doe jumping through the forest and and everybody else was was sucking wind it 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 was once you saw that it felt like it was eons away despite the fact that it was close it's pretty pretty rugged up in the in in that area in some places
3: chris thomas is the author of a new book released today unexpected uh, it's a, it's an excellent book, and it takes us behind the scenes. It's so well-written, but it takes us behind the scenes of what was going on, things we didn't know were going on. I was on the front lines as a reporter for KSL 5 TV, doing tons of interviews and following the case day by day, get up in the morning and know exactly what story I was covering that day, and it took so many odd twists and turns. If you could pick one moment that was the oddest or the strangest twist for you, besides the moment... She was right. found alive. What would that moment be, Chris?
12: So I mentioned the tension between law enforcement and the smarts to, to come forward with the information. Uh, once the family finally came forward, they offered a reward, a $10,000 reward for anyone who could exonerate Richard Reese, who had died at that, who, who had been dead for a while at that time. And then they put out the sketch. Uh, Ed and I flew to New York uh, to do interviews with the morning shows so that, that next morning, and they all canceled. Uh, and after the last one, I I called a source at one of the networks that I trusted and had been a very had been very good in giving me good information, and he said you're going to want to sit down. He said the Salt Lake City Police Department has told us that you concocted this story to try to get Elizabeth back in the news, and that while they're looking into this guy, they don't think he had anything to do with it, and they want you to be very careful.
3: Chris, I'm going to interrupt you. Elizabeth Smart's on the line. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning. We're just wrapping up a conversation with the author of this new book, Chris Thomas. I know you know him very, very well, and you wrote the foreword in the book, and that was brilliantly written. Elizabeth, 20 years ago, today, you were found alive. Um, Tell us about what the next 20 years looks like for you and your family.
11: I mean, it's certainly been a whirlwind and a lifetime separate, yet the same. I mean, it's It's something I never dreamed that I would be able to say. It's something I couldn't even imagine the day after I was rescued. I couldn't imagine one day in the future being able to look back and be, oh, yes, that was 20 years ago, and now I'm married and I have three kids and I'm able to devote so much of my time and energy to this cause that I feel so passionate about, um, you know, helping to educate and advocate and um, hopefully spread hope and healing. Um, I feel incredibly lucky to be where I am.
4: Elizabeth Smart joins us right now uh, as we uh, remember 20 years ago uh, when when you were found, uh, has there ever been a moment or how many moments I guess, through the years, have you just thought, you know I need to leave this behind and what what pushes you forward to continue down uh, this path of advocacy?
11: I don't think I'd be human if I didn't occasionally have that thought. Um, yeah, of course, of course, there have been times where I felt like this is not the life I imagined, or or this is this is hard. This is breaking my heart. I, I don't know if I can how long I can sustain this for. But you know, the dust settles, and and I remember, I remember what it was like. And I remember being raped. And I remember being scared. And I remember feeling terrified. And I look at where I am right now or, or in that moment, and I'm safe. And I have a wonderful family and a wonderful husband. And and I am able to just count all of the beautiful things that I have in my life. And and I want that. I want that for every survivor out there. and um, And, you know, having met. So many parents of missing children, um, and talking to my own parents, they've they've all said the worst part is not is not knowing, and feeling like everyone deserves an ending, um, whether it be in the way that you pray and wish or not. Everyone deserves an ending um, because because the not knowing does destroy so many families.
4: Elizabeth Smart, thank you for joining us. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time to spend a few minutes with us.
3: Yeah, Elizabeth, thank you so much for crusading, for survivors of abuse, um, and for families who want that closure and want to know. Um, I know the whole community still loves you um, the way we loved you back in 2002. And we're so grateful that you were found 20 years ago alive. And, well,
4: it's propaganda Beak. You, Debbie, it's always great to see you
3: in four minutes, in four minutes. Next,
4: when the price is right.
0: Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport.
7: She was tear gassed and beaten.
0: Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America.